Hello, listeners. My name is Pietro, and welcome to another episode of the LSE Focal Point podcast. Today, we are delighted to be joined by Lisa Quest. Lisa is partner and head of UK and Ireland at Oliver Wyman. She has nearly 15 years of experience consulting across both sides of the pond, starting a career in New York with Oliver Wyman. After a stint in private equity, she rejoined Oliver Wyman in 2013 as a consultant in London and completed a master's in public administration at LSE in 2015. At Oliver Wyman, Lisa's area of expertise is in public sector and policy practice in Europe, where she works with public organizations to improve productivity, deploy digital capabilities, and transform. Outside of client work, Lisa has a global role in the Oliver Wyman Forum and is a visiting academic fellow at LSE. Lisa, how are you doing today? I'm great, thank you. And thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I'm really delighted to be here. I loved my time at the LSE, and I'm really excited to be able to talk to you. Great to hear, and thank you for joining us. So with nothing else to do, I'll hop right into the first question, which will revolve around you telling us more about your career journey, perhaps starting from what you were up to at university and how you got to where you are today from your perspective, painting more picture to the introduction that I gave. Brilliant. Thank you so much. I did my undergraduate work at a Canadian university called the Richard Ivey School of Business at the University of Western Ontario. And it's an undergraduate business administration program, which tries to replicate a, a two-year MBA, but done at the undergraduate level. I absolutely loved it. I um, spent two years before that doing regular kind of undergraduate Bachelor of Arts, and then two years specialized mostly at, on the HBA in international finance and management techniques. From there, I interviewed with many of the major consulting firms and decided ultimately that I wanted to specialize in financial services, which was what led me to joining Oliver Wyman, which at the time was a specialist financial services advisory firm. So I went from London, Ontario, down to New York when I was 21 years old and had a fantastic time. I've spent the first seven years of my career working in New York with Oliver Wyman, largely spoke specializing in capital markets, and private equity advisory. Decided that I really wanted to get my hands much more directly on the wheel. So I left Oliver Wyman for a number of years and went and spent time actually doing private equity investing. So this was after the financial crisis. So we specialized in doing financial services carve outs. So essentially the banks and products that banks are no longer allowed to hold, we spun those out into non-regulated financial services companies, which was a time that was very interesting, uh, I, very intellectually stimulating. But ultimately, what I wanted to do was actually work closer with the public sector in overseeing the sector, as opposed to just working on uh, directly on the private capital side of the house. And so I came back to Oliver Wyman. My husband is British, so we ended up on this side of the pond. And having worked in London previously, I really enjoyed living here and have since been working in the public sector at Oliver Wyman, advising mostly into UK government both central government departments as well as arm's length bodies and central banks around the world. So in addition to the work that I currently do, I also lead our central banking practice globally. And that's given me a really interesting insight into the trends more broadly in the financial services sector, how we are thinking about that from a central banking perspective, and then how the supervisors are actually overseeing the market. Since I moved here, I also have two wonderful children and it's added a really interesting balance to my career. So not only do I have the boys at home, but we also I also am on the board of a number of charities and have a very interesting kind of portfolio approach to the work that I do now, which is great. That's great to hear. And definitely some points that we will touch upon later there. First of all, I wanted to ask is sort of going back to your time at university. 
What parts of your university studies do you relate to what you have worked on throughout your career and what you do now? I think I might see some similarities with my own degree in management. So it does sound like you did a sort of generalist program, which is similar to what many people at LSE do now in management and other degrees. But from your perspective, how have you found your degree to be applicable to what you've done throughout your career and what you do now? So in two ways, obviously, there's a foundational expertise that you get when you are taking your kind of economics course or your management science courses and in terms of how do you think about and analyze the market. But the other thing that I found most effective, and, and this was both my undergraduate work, but also in my MPA at the LSE, <clears throat> is that approach to teamwork and problem solving. Everything you do in, in advisory is around solving problems in teams. So your ability to communicate with people, your ability to structure analysis, your ability to solve problems in a way that works effectively together on an ongoing basis is, is absolutely critical. And I'd say from both my time at the LSE and in my undergraduate work, that's probably what I took forward and is most valuable to me now and becomes increasingly valuable in the latter parts of my career as well. So if you think about it as a a ramp in the junior part of your career, those foundational and technical elements and expertise are essential. That's all you do. You're doing the basic blocking and tackling of, of the market analysis and putting together the, the presentations. But as you become more senior in your career, your ability to communicate with empathy, your ability to form consensus, your ability to form teams is absolutely critical. And so I'd say the balance has almost entirely shifted for me now. Now, touching upon Part of, your part of your introduction where you were speaking to the public sector practice that you do at Oliver Wyman. We've had Nick Studer, the CEO of Oliver Wyman, on the podcast, and he's already answered the question of what is consulting, and he gave a great answer, which is also in the context of Oliver Wyman. So I'll now ask a sort of variation of this question tailored to you. What is consulting for a public sector practice, and what are some of the differences it has relative to consulting for other sectors? I would say it's very similar to consulting for other sectors, but the difference with advising into the public sector is that you are, you've taken away the profit motive, right? So a lot of the way in which you motivate individuals or which you steer a private sector organization have to do with the management of quarterly earnings or the management of kind of yearly earnings on an ongoing basis and, and the growth of those earnings over time. Advisory into the public sector really focuses on the effectiveness and the efficiency of delivery against public sector objectives. And the way that we approach advisory into the public sector is very similar to private. How are we helping our clients solve their most pressing problems? How are we bringing the data and problem solving techniques that are unique to Oliver Wyman to bear on those problems to ensure that we're able to provide high quality, tested, pushed advice that allows our, our clients to make better decisions than they would have otherwise. Within public sector, we put an incredibly high litmus test also on value for money. So we are cognizant that we are an expensive resource and we are spending taxpayer money in order to bring that resource to bear on those particular problems. So we have a level of scrutiny in the public sector whenever we take on a project to say, is this genuinely something where they need Oliver Wyman's advice and help? Are we uniquely placed to this? problem such that we can return to the public sector a multiple of our fees. And if we can't answer yes to both of those questions, we simply won't do that work. And that's one of the things that we've been very proud about in terms of our public sector advisory. Great. I'll definitely touch upon some of the work that you've done as part of that later on. But I want to ask one last question, which is still like tapping into the past before asking more present day questions. 
So last question, Mike Morphus, is you've had the fortune of working both in London and New York. I know you said you're married to your husband who is British, but how did the opportunity to make the jump come about? So Oliver Wyman runs a, a very global staffing model and, and we allow individuals to move quite fluidly around the world to any of the 50 offices that we have. Starting my career in New York was fantastic. I loved living in Manhattan. It felt very vibrant. It felt very alive. And I love living in London as well. And it, it, it likewise feels very vibrant and alive, but it is a much more livable city than Manhattan, if I could put it that way. And the work that I'm getting to do here, the practice that I've been able to build has been one of the the things that I'm most proud about in my career. So I was very grateful for Oliver Wyman for giving me the opportunity to be able to move over here and to be able to join the London team and to have been able to grow and, and scale a career here. It's been phenomenal. Now speaking to your career, so as head of UK and Ireland, on a day-to-day basis, what does the role entail? And perhaps what have you been up to lately? I think my favorite part about this job is that there is no standard day-to-day basis in advisory. The way in which I think about the execution of my role is really balancing three areas. The first is the direct work that I do with clients. And I derive so much satisfaction from the direct work that I do with clients. It, It is one of the things that I value most about this job is getting to work with incredibly intelligent clients on their most pressing issues. So that is, I think, probably the area of, of my job that I derive the most satisfaction of. And I spend, I would say, about half of my time still just in the market, working with clients and, and helping them solve their problems. The other half of my time, I divide between two areas. The first is actually running the market. So I spend a lot of time with uh, the management team here that I have, which comprises both commercial partners as well as our support professional partners. And we really think about across the sectors that we work in, which in the UK is predominantly financial services, energy, aviation, public sector, and healthcare. How, what are the trends in those markets? How are our client needs evolving? What do we need to do as an advisory firm to best help and support them in a way that brings our kind of data-driven expertise to bear on their issues? And we, we spend quite a bit of time together to just learn and cross-pollinate ideas across practices and, and think about how we steer the business. And then the other portion of my time I spend actually with the support professional partners on how are we best supporting our internal people? How are we creating an opportunity that allows our consultants, our support professionals, our specialists to thrive and grow? What are the changing dynamics in terms of workplace requirements from them? What do they want from a learning perspective? What do they need from a mental health perspective? How are we offering them the best physical work environment? We're going through a major office renovation at the moment, which is taking up a bit more of the time, but the creation and the curation of that physical space is really important to making sure that everybody feels comfortable and energized coming to work. So it's probably a moving target between those three things with respect to where I spend my most time, mm. but that's generally the balance that I'm trying to achieve. That third point, especially, I read a, an article in the FT where you actually spoke with them about that third point there. I'm not going to go into it in this interview. If any of the listeners are interested, are interested, we have to do is just search Lisa Quest on the FT and you'll probably find the article. So yeah, if you want to learn about that third point there, you're very much there. But now moving on to your other roles and activities. So what do you actually do as a visiting fellow at LSE? So within that role, I do a lot of research with the Center for Risk and Regulation. We've published joint articles together. I'm very lucky in that I get to guest lecture from time to time on the policy and practice series. I think the next time I'll be coming over is in November and just getting to talk to you all about 
how policy actually works in the real world. And that's one of my favorite things to do because I think I learned so much at the LSE and I really enjoyed my time. But one of my favorite things to hear about was, okay, fine, this is what works in theory. But actually, when you are sitting in the room and you're confronted with the reality of having to try to implement a particular policy, how do you then, or how do practitioners then think about that? What works, what doesn't? And how do you take that change from theoretical to practical? Because if we can't make policy work in the real world, we can have all the beautiful theory that we want, but we're actually not going to materially positively impact the lives of citizens. And if I think about that in, in the negative sense, some of the biggest policy missteps, I think, were perfectly reasonable in theory. But when you layer over behavioral insights and how people will actually engage with that in the real world, they completely fell down. And that's where I think the best thing we can do for policymakers is to train them and help them understand a bit more about the actual world and how that how their policies may impact real people so that we can train better policymakers. Mm hmm jot down the, the, the dates november like next like next month literally it's october now so yeah. i won't be able to be there i'm gonna exchange here in milan but anyone in london november lse right there now for this is a bit of a mouthful of a question i wish running short on time but i'll still try and take a stab at it so it's speaking to more commercial affairs right and some recent work you've done so in partnership with the city of london corporation oliver wyman developed the vision for economic growth reports and what I wanted to discuss was one of the sections of the report or parts of them, which revolved around pensions and investment in UK companies. So I'll now read the two parts from the report, a quite brief or brief parts I've selected. So it goes, if UK-based investors, including pension funds, were more willing to invest in high growth, unlisted firms as part of a diversified portfolio, then long-term savers could benefit from greater returns and UK firms could access a deeper pool of capital. And then the other section is government has indicated that up to 75 billion pounds in private capital could be unlocked by 2030 if local government pension schemes increase their allocation to unlisted equities by 10 percent which the government was consulting on at the time of publication and if uk defined contribution schemes allocate at least five percent of their default funds to unlisted equities then it goes to speak about solvency too and so on i wanted to then skip to the final part which was Capital will only flow if these regulatory reforms are accompanied by profound cultural change. So what my question was surrounding that is what is meant by prof profound cultural change revolving around unlisted investments? And how could the recent news from around the end of September on the FCA's plan to launch a review of private market valuations influence this? I'm coming from the perspective of as there's this sort of argument that private markets only generate higher returns because they aren't valued on a mark-to-market basis. But at the same time, this is speaking about high returns from private markets. So I want to get some insight from you on how FCA's review could perhaps influence this. You're right. That was a big mouthful of the question. Let me <laughs> So let me just try to unpack that a little bit. So you, yeah. so you kind of wanted to understand more around how the FCA's review could influence the allocation of capital from pension funds into private markets. Is that fair? Mm, yeah, that's fair. Okay. So basically what we, what we were looking to do with the city of London work is start to raise awareness for the type of returns that pension funds could generate if they were to in, take an increased asset allocation towards uh, UK specific equities and, and UK specific um, non-listed companies, because right now we have an overweight allocation 
towards bonds in UK pension funds. That's and that's on a both a defined benefit contribution scheme as oh, sorry, a defined benefit scheme as well as a defined contribution scheme. So one of the things that we've talked about a lot in the UK market for gosh, the past 10 years or so, but have been particularly pushing harder over the course of the last 12 months. And you'll have seen this come out in things like the Mansion House Compact, the City of London paper, the Khalifa Review. There there have been a number of reports and then public commitments around pension funds making a higher contribution into both listed and non-listed equities. That requires uh, a different skill set from the pensions and they've currently had in-house. It requires a different culture, it requires different management reporting, and it requires different incentive schemes to be put in place. I think what we need to what we need to do is to continue to work with large pension funds to help raise the literacy and awareness of what it would take to invest successfully in these companies. But then you start to create a, a proper ecosystem of, of funds that are available to help UK startups scale up through what we often call the valley of death with respect to funding for UK companies. And you can start to create much more productive ecosystems that don't then see these companies leaving the UK in search of funds, right? So even when I look at the the UK scale-up market now, the vast majority of those scale-ups are actually being funded through American-based private equity funds. And when, you have, when you're funded through an American-based private equity fund, the odds that you then relocate for your scale-up to another country are significantly higher. So if we can create that kind of virtuous ecosystem here in the UK, that is exactly what we're aiming off against. I think the FCA, the FCA positioning give companies surety to allow them to feed into their risk management positions and make sure that we're able to then fit everything together. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I agree with the providing surety because the whole, my perspective on it was that pension funds wouldn't invest in unlisted equities because of the risks that they perceive. But then if we have the FCA step in, then it provides that surety that you said so hopefully we would get to a, a good solution there. So yeah, that's a, that's a good answer there. And I hope it helps the listeners because I feel like being able to speak to pensions, which of course isn't the most accessible to students, but not, it is accessible, but it's not like the first thing that students think of when they think of finance, they think of other things. But I'd say pensions crisis is one of the most serious issues in the UK and no one ever talks about it. So it's great to be able to speak about it with you. So then we have one minute left. So in this one minute, I wanted to ask you, what has been the biggest learning during your career and what advice would you have to the undergraduates of today who may or may not be looking to get into your line of business? The biggest piece of advice I'd have is identify your sponsors and your mentors early and create a, a symbiotic relationship with them. Too often, I think people approach sponsorship or mentorship as a one-way street. And it's around what can my sponsor or mentor do for me, as opposed to how am I creating a mutually beneficial relationship between a more senior person at a different part of their career and be at the junior part of my career and identifying and building that relationship with people who really want to invest in you, almost agnostic of kind of the specific content or or areas that you're working in. Surround yourself with a team of people who want to help you succeed as a person and you'll be incredibly successful and happy. That was great. And with that, I'd like to wrap up the interview with Lisa today. Thank you listeners for tuning in today. And thank you again to Lisa for joining us on the podcast. Brilliant. Thanks again so much for having me and looking forward to seeing some of you in November.